Hello, this is Deb, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network in Deb's Data Dojo. Um, DJ Dooley is here with me today. He's a member of the UFO community and he's interested in cryptids and UFOs. He was invited into the dojo to tell the community about who he is and to talk about everything. He also does contractual remote viewing for the CIA. So welcome to the dojo. Hello, it's nice to be here. Um, so I believe we met in a talk space and that was exciting. I just, I think it's like a really great opportunity for people to connect and I just love talking to new people. So I'm very happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yes. So can you please tell people just in general who you are before we go into, like, obviously I did an introduction, but I think I want to give you an opportunity to elaborate a little bit more about who you are before I start asking you a whole bunch of questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my name's DJ. Uh, I've been kind of active, I guess you would say, in the UFO community for a little over a year now. I think I joined Twitter last November. Um, I consider myself sort of like a paranormal, bro broadly kind of paranormal dweeb and researcher. Like I'm interested in lots of different topics, everything from, you know, Roswell to the Loch Ness Monster to Fay and the simulation theory. I mean, the whole, the whole spread. And, uh, and what's really fascinating to me is the deeper I've gotten into all of these topics, the more connections I've found between everything. And it's just so crazy. I mean, you, you, you know, we tend to think of them as all these kind of isolated topics. And what does Atlantis have to do with Mokili and Bembe? Well, <laughs> it, it might have quite a bit to do with the, you know, or that kind of a thing. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the angle at which I'm coming at my research and my interest just as a kind of fan of the paranormal. Um, I also do uh, remote viewing, uh, contracted, you know, contractual remote viewing for the CIA. Um, I'm, I'm loving it. I mean, I'm new, new to it. I haven't been doing it too long. I'm pretty far from like a guru, but it's really, really exciting and it's really crazy and interesting. And I'm just so glad that, that I opened up that part of my brain to that and learned all about that. Um, and okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to go into <laughs> questions. I'm too excited about all of that. Okay. So let's start with, with the, the researching. So how, how long have you been researching? Well, that's kind of a good question. I mean, I've been into the paranormal since I was a little kid. I mean, as long as I can remember, like the, going back to the earliest that I have memories, I loved aliens and cryptozoology and ghosts and, you know, all the lore, like vampires and, you know, just everything. I've always been super interested in that since I was a kid. As far as, like, kind of taking it more seriously and getting really deep on it, probably about last year, yeah, probably about the time, about a year ago, a little over a year ago that I joined UFO Twitter is probably what got me really into it. So, like, partly I joined because I was getting more into it, and then also joining had the effect of being, like, a catalyst for me, you know, kind of both ways well it's funny because that's about the same time i got like really serious i would say it was maybe september of last yeah, year. yeah there was something in the water i mean you know mm -hmm. there was something in the air i don't know what it was but a lot of people especially i've noticed in ufo twitter right now all kind of showed up around the same time we all just kind of like 
you know, the Avengers assembled or whatever. <laughs> I hate to say this, but, um, and this is something I've said before, but some people think it might be like we're chess pieces that got put into play. What do you think? Are you still there? Oh no, your audio went away. Okay, so hopefully DJ will be able to get his audio back and he had to step out for a moment. Um, in the meantime, hopefully we'll get all the answers. I'm excited. I'm hoping he'll come back soon. Um, so I met him in a talk space and I, I guess I'll just say something about my own journey um, because I was interested in all those paranormal things too when I was young and I studied things like, you know, magic and um, I was interested in Wicca and I was interested in doing ghost investigations and all those things. Um, but I wasn't really interested in UFOs per se, even though I would watch the mystery shows and things like that. And then all of a sudden, it was like September of last year, I just felt like I had to do this. And I became intensely interested and I caught up really fast and absorbed everything I could. And I was summarizing FOIAs on Facebook and Twitter um, so that everyone would know what was going on. And when I first started this journey, I had a very different view of what was going on than where I am now, um, just from having done so much intense research. Um, so yeah, our, our guest is still not returned. Um, this is an unusual occurrence. I wonder if the CIA told him to stop talking to me. Hopefully that's not the case and he'll be back really soon. In the meantime, um, oh, he's starting to come back. He's having a mic issue. Okay, so hopefully he'll be back in just a moment. He's still having a mic issue. The CIA told him not to talk to me, apparently. That's very sad. So, yeah, talk spaces on Twitter have been really helpful for me meeting new people. So if anyone is listening and sees me in a talk space on Twitter, please come and talk to me. I really enjoy talking to new people. Um, I want to know what everyone is doing. Um, I want to know what everyone wants to say and contribute to the conversation. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I am so sorry about that. I got a phone call and it completely booted me out and I had to restart my phone and everything. So hopefully we're good now. Okay, tell everyone else in the CIA to stop messing with your phone. <laughs> it's Ramirez, I'm telling you, it's all him. No, he would never do that. He would help me to talk to you. I know it. <laughs> okay. So I, I will just do, I never edit, but I'll just edit the silence that happened. <laughs> so okay. no one else will have to hear it. So no I'm one just will gonna, ever know. Yeah. 
Okay, so welcome back. And um, I did have to just talk about myself for a couple of minutes. That was awkward. No, I've, I have been interviewed once before, but for the most part, just talking to myself is weird. <laughs> okay, so welcome back. Um, you were talking about you'd been researching since you were a kid and then just like me, you just felt compelled to start participating um, and getting more intense with the research. I imagine that just like me, you went through a, quite a journey in the last year. Um, and I was asking before you got CIA booted by the NSA or whatever CIA, um, if, if you felt like you were also compelled, if you felt like you had a compulsion to, to come in and really get serious about this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it had been in the air, you know, starting around maybe 2017 or so with the kind of modern disclosure push. But yeah, I, I can't really explain why it felt like now was the time. And all of a sudden I was just like, like paranormal dweeb mode activated. <laughs> like I just, I went from not being on Twitter to pretty much being on it like almost every day, all day. And, and not just Twitter, but, you know, reading books I had never read that I'd always wanted to and connecting with people and watching documentaries and just the whole nine yards. But I absolutely, I, there was this really interesting sense of compulsion and I've heard that from other people too. Right. And, and, um, and Diana Pasolka's book, American cosmic, she's saying it's like a calling, you know, and I hate to like make it like almost like a religious thing, but it is, it's like a calling. Like I had to do it. Right. And every day I'm like, I have to do something. And sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. I know what you mean. I mean, it, it, it does sound a little corny. I mean, you know, but I, I, I think that to myself, but it really does feel like a calling. It really feels like maybe there is like, you know, everything happens for a reason and there's some sort of a purpose for all of us being here, like a star seed type thing or whatever word you want to use, you mm -hmm. know I mean? But I, I definitely feel that way myself, and I, I think lots of people do. I don't, I don't think it's unusual at all. Well, here we are. So I get to ask you really fun, exciting questions about the remote viewing program. So first of all, are you comfortable with saying where you were trained in remote viewing? Are you allowed to say that? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, in my case, I, I'm... I wasn't really trained in any sense. Like I didn't, I didn't take classes in any formal way. I just sort of taught myself. Um, I guess you could say I was kind of recruited into it. That's the word I would use. I'm not sure if, if that's like the exact technically correct word, but yeah, I, uh, I had very little experience with it and I, and I kind of taught myself. Um, I read a great book by David Morehouse, who's an ex army guy that, I believe at one point, probably still, he taught more remote viewing students than anybody else. I mean, something like 20,000 plus students. And he just wrote this great book. And I, I really recommend it for people if, if they're interested in learning or just at least even learning about it. It's awesome. And he, he even gives his personal email in the book. Like it's buried kind of hidden in there. And if you, if you read the book and if you have any questions, you can email him and he gets back to you. I mean, it's super cool. Like he's, he obviously knows a lot about it, not just kind of the practice, but the theory and the history of it, which is really interesting too. And um, yeah, so I mean, I would say I just 
essentially self-taught, but I had a lot of people, I asked people questions and they helped me. And uh, yeah, that book really was just a, a fantastic resource. Can't, can't recommend it enough. So I've actually heard something interesting about remote viewing, um, and you might be able to answer this for me, but I've heard that if someone has a psychic gift, it can actually get in the way of remote viewing. Is that true? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what, what like the theory behind that would be my understanding with remote viewing and this comes from like reading morehouse's book and and other people i've read a couple other books too they all kind of say the same thing which is that literally everybody can do it and to some extent everybody already does do it it's mm -hmm. sort of the process of learning remote viewing is almost more like a process of unlearning than learning what you're really trying to do and this is like almost a verbatim quote from morehouse's you're trying to kind of deprogram yourself because we're kind of brought up in this, you know, modern, industrial, Western, left brain society. And you're trying to sort of undo the programming that tells you, oh, well, remote viewing is not possible. Or even if it is, I'm not the person. I'm not special enough to be the person that can do it. And that's something I felt and like everybody. I mean, did you talk to anybody who's ever gotten into remote viewing? I'm sure they'll all tell you the same thing. You all have that voice of self-doubt and, you know, skepticism. And I think so much of learning remote viewing, may, maybe even like the majority of it when it really comes down to it, is just unlearning those sort of self-psych outs that you give yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and learning how to quiet that voice and just listen to your intuition. Yeah, I was just talking to someone um, recently that, about um, a presentation I saw done by a neurologist, I believe. Um, he basically said, the brain really wants to put everything in a box, right? It wants us to use like schemas. It wants us to simplify things, break things down, keep us laser focused on one thing. So because of that, our brain will kind of play some tricks on us sometimes. Um, it'll make us see what it wants us to see. And we have to overcome all of that to see more of what's actually in existence. Um, so that's why like illusions are, are a thing too, right? Because the brain is just like trying to make sense of something the eye is sending to it. <laughs> so um, I feel like for someone to be able to do remote viewing, like you said, they would have to reprogram their brain. Is that kind of the same thing you think? To some extent, I think that's probably fair. I think it's it's more, it really comes down to the kind of the divide between the left and the right hemispheres. I mean, the, there's a lot of theory with remote viewing. There's a lot that's not properly under properly understood, at least yet. But everyone seems to agree that it's very much a right brain activity. So what you were talking about in terms of like putting things into boxes and categories and logically organizing them, that's your classic kind of left brain modality of thought and we need the left brain of course like you you literally could not live a, any sort of a normal life without your left brain but it's not any inherently better or worse than your right brain and i read this great book by james olson called whole brain thinking and that's kind of the point of the book i recommend that book to people too because it shows you a bigger picture of like you know your left and your right brain 
really are designed to work in tandem together. But for whatever reason, we're brought up in this left brain dominant society. And the vast majority of people are left brain dominant, whether they think of it in those terms or not. And we often kind of reduce the right brain to sort of like a recreational thing. Like you write poetry on the weekends or you learn how to play a piano or whatever. And yeah, that's all great. But the right brain is capable of helping your left brain with logical thought to a much greater extent than we're told. And at the same time, the right brain is kind of the gateway into this psi realm, this, this sort of hidden kingdom, this kind of remote viewing realm where you can really begin to sort of leave your body, perhaps almost literally, and access this kind of non-local domain and just experience such a fuller version of reality. So yeah, I think what you're saying makes sense because it's like we're so used to that kind of logical left brain thinking but the right brain which we think of as more feeling and expression and art if you work out those muscles if you learn how to engage your life with your right brain you're, you're just gonna find really quickly at least in my experience how much it changes things so do you think that if someone's doing a painting for instance a lot of people say it's like connecting to another dimension you go into like a zone some people talk about muses interacting with them do you think that that's activating the right brain significantly because i do paint so i was wondering if i could make my right brain better yeah i mean absolutely i think any sort of artistic expression is is a good workout for your right brain and it's getting you to think in those terms there's a lot of other things you can do too. I mean, I, I don't, I don't suppose there's any real limit to it, whatever might work for you. Um, just learning how to think creatively about things, you know, maybe you're not really the kind of person that wants to do visual art or learn a musical instrument. You don't have to do that, but I mean, you could learn how to just sort of think outside the box and think creatively about things. And there's like brain teasers and puzzles online you can do and stuff too. And, I very much think that all of those things are a pathway to the same outcome. You know, I'm going to be just going and looking for apps that are like right brain, brain teasers. <laughs> <laughs> you should. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I actually enjoy solving puzzles in video games and I enjoy doing art. And I, I feel like I'm fairly good at expressing, like I used to write a lot of poetry and stuff like that. So it makes me wonder... Maybe I have more going on than I think. Hmm. You probably but, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone does. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, if you just talk to the average person who's not even in the UFO community, you're going to find that everyone is connecting to Psy in some way. Everyone's saying, you know, they've had a psychic dream or they figured out where something was because, like, it just came to them or you know they had a really bizarre coincidence happen where they had been thinking about something and then something happens you know some people call those synchronicities so i think that people on a daily basis are encountering psi we also use what we call our intuition which is a very popular word for this in the mainstream right fairly regularly and the people who do it more tend to be more successful do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, 
it, it's like anything else. I suppose the more you you practice it, the more effort you put into it, the more you maybe appreciate it on some level, the better you'll get at it. But um, I, I really just can't stress enough how 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 deeply I feel that everybody can do it. I mean, it's like, it, and I think everybody already does do it. Like you talked about intuition. We've all had those moments before where it's like, oh my God, I better call so-and-so. And you just, you can't figure out why. And then you call them and you realize they were just in this car accident or something, you know? Mm. And sure, maybe that's coincidence and sometimes, but when you, when you look at how often it happens, and there's been like studies of this for decades, people, you know, doing this research, you'll see pretty quickly that it appears at the aggregate level that it's definitely beyond coincidence. So, mm -hmm. okay. So, you know, I, I, the elephant in the room is that you are contractually doing this for the CIA. Can you explain a little bit about how that came about? Because of course there's rumors galore about how this was the CIA's baby uh, in some ways. And then, it got killed for a while when it came out of um, Hal Putoff's hands, um, and then it was just shelved and put somewhere else. Um, so, how did you end up doing it for the CIA? Are you able to say? I'm able. I, I I'm. I can talk about it a little bit. I'm sure. I mean, I. You know, it's. Yeah, I mean, so basically remote viewing and it, as a thing and giving it that label comes from the CIA. I believe the term was coined by Ingo Swan, um, who was doing remote viewing and sci uh, research for the CIA. It comes out of, you know, the Stanford Research, Univ uh, Stanford research Institute. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then that program... It, it, there's been so many different programs. I mean, Morehouse's book gets into it. Different ICs, different intelligence communities have had remote viewing programs and then they're ended and they're started again. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I guess what, what I am comfortable saying is I was recruited. I, I believe that's the, the fair term. I don't know what other word it would be for it. Um, I wasn't like already somebody who did remote viewing, as I've said. It's not like I had this long history of doing it or anything like that. Um, and yeah, I guess you'd say they just kind of reached out to me and uh, I said yes and wanted to do it. And it seemed really exciting and cool. And um, here I am. So it is kind of exciting and cool, although I have heard some not so good stories. So although I do not have any interest at all in what you're doing for the CIA because I don't think that that's a comfortable area for us to talk about. I do want to know if you've ever just remote viewed something really bizarre or interesting related to the phenomenon on your own. Um, and I'll give you an example of one of the stories I heard. I can't remember the name of the remote viewer, but he said that he was trying to remote view um, where they had seen some UFOs. And he ended up basically inside a cube. Like he was stuck in that cube and he wasn't sure he was getting out of it. Um, and there were entities that were pretty upset with him for being there. Like they were saying, you don't belong here. <laughs> so um, have you ever had any bizarre remote viewing experiences related to the phenomenon? Well, that's... That's an interesting question. Um, 
I, I suppose there's kind of different ways to answer that. Um, I, in the beginning, I was, and this is actually predates any sort of a CIA, you know, connection here. But like, when I first started getting into, I guess, what became remote viewing, I was more interested in sort of OBEs, out-of-body experiences, astral projection, that kind of a thing. And it's all very much linked. But one of the more interesting ones I had was I... I guess in retrospect, I was remote viewing Atlantis. And um, at the time it was just this really intense, like immersive experience. And it was so much different than the other ones because I think when you first start getting into this stuff, you're kind of struggling to, okay, is this just my imagination? Am I just making this up? Is it just like a fun little exercise? But this one felt much more immersive than that. And the reason I think outside of just how real it felt and how different at the time that was, that there was something to it is because I saw all these dinosaurs. <laughs> and I know it sounded so funny, but it's like there were people like on dinosaurs and dino and I, and they looked sort of like what I now think Native Americans, I suspect a lot of them, uh, a lot of it, the, you know, Edgar Casey said there was like a Native American connection with Atlantis and they kind of looked like Native Americans. And I didn't really know any of that at the time. And so looking back on it now and having done my own research on Atlantis just for my own sake, I think, whoa, that's really weird. Because, you know, you think of Atlantis, you watch the Disney movie, it's not, it, you don't really see that sort of a thing. And so that, that's one example that comes to mind. Um, yeah, that's probably, the, that's probably the best example I have of something like that happening where it's like, yeah. wow, in retrospect, that's... That's really hard to explain if it's just coincidence. Well, one of the most interesting things about remote viewing is that it's not stuck in a time frame. Although when people get their coordinates, of course, they can specifically go to a time frame. But when they don't have that that um, measurement given to them, it seems like they can go really far back. And some people, I think, have tried to go into the future even. Um, and would not surprise me at all if you had seen people who were um, similar to Native Americans, <laughs> because uh, I've heard a few stories that make me really think that when people are talking about the sky people, that there's more of a connection to us than we realize. Yeah, so, I mean. That, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, a lot of a, Nati a lot of Native American cultures have stories of being descended from Atlantis. Some use the exact name Atlantis. Other have, you know, different names for it. But a lot of times it starts with an A. I mean, there's an Edgar Casey. you know, speaking of remote viewing and Psy, he did his he did. I have a whole book collecting, you know, Casey's readings on Atlantis. It's super cool. I, I totally recommend that for anyone interested in Atlantis or remote viewing. But um I mean, one of the most amazing things he did, there are these instances of foreknowledge in there where he's just astonishingly spot on. And one of the things he talks about in there is he talks about in the time of Atlantis, and I forget the exact um, years he gives, but I looked it up and he talks about the poles having been reversed on the earth. And now we know that that's true. And the exact time frame he give that the, the, the poles like magnetically were reversed or whatever is correct. 
But the craziest thing is not that he got that right. He got that right before scientists even knew that our polls shifted from time to time. He didn't, that wasn't even consensus knowledge. I, mean, I don't even think that had been proposed as a theory yet. And he somehow not only got lucky and figured that out, but he knew the exact time that it was true. And so it's, and there's other stuff like that in the book where his readings of Atlantis are checking out so well, it's just like a one in a million shot that he somehow got that right. One would think, um, you know, if he's not actually doing it. So, you know, it's so weird because while we're talking about this, I keep going back to the dinosaurs because so many people have said that they see an entity that they um, describe as either draconian or, and I hate this term, but I'll use it for this because people know what it means, reptilian, right? So let's just say as a thought experiment that there was an ancient civilization that did not originate from Earth and they came at the time of the dinosaurs and what would they probably do they would probably experiment on those dinosaurs and then they might take those experiments with them and leave for a while because of a giant you know worldwide issue with oxygen caused by an asteroid you know um and maybe they would go to mars for a little while these are all things that would connect to things that I've heard, by the way. And then maybe they might come back when once the planet settles a little bit, creating stories among the indigenous people, including Mayans who say that they are the star people. They are the sky people. That it's not that they're um, real, like just, you know, visited by them, but they are them. So... Yeah, I know that's a little, quite a, a story, but it's a possibility, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I'm definitely a believer in that myself. I've had my own experiences with these so-called reptilians, so to speak. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a major part of what's going on, you know, not just with like the current UFO cover up, but but historically, like you were saying, I think that there are these Saurian kind of uh yeah, I guess you call them entities or bloodlines or whatever. It may, it may sort of one kind of bleeds into the other. But yeah, I think there's definitely a story about dinosaur genetics and space and time and everything like that that's waiting to be unraveled. Man, I cannot wait for us to figure out some more things. I know people who know more tend to be like, oh, you'd be scared if you knew. But I'm like, no, I want to know. Like, I, I think I'm more scared of not knowing. I'm more scared of the absence of knowledge and what could happen to us if we're ignorant. Um, so I definitely, like, that's why we're doing data dojo, right? Like, we want the information. So um, another question I had is, if have you ever tried to remote view Mars? Because I've heard other stories about people remote viewing Mars and seeing like civilizations there which is part of that story i just told because i think that it's a possibility that if something came to visit us they hopped over there for a while when mars was viable and then had to hop back makes sense to me um i i never have uh, remote viewed mars or attempted to remote view um 
another planet. It sounds really fun though. Like I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, you know, Ingo Swan's famous Jupiter remote viewing he did. Um, and I think that turned out really good. Again, he talked about foreknowledge. He seemed to have gotten things right at, at a time when it is before anyone really knew it. And I, I actually did like a thread on that on, on Twitter. And I found all sorts of stuff that he, he was just spot on about that in the, you know, just again, just so hard to chalk up to, to random luck. But yeah, no, I, I haven't myself tried to remote view a planet, but that's a good idea. That sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe I will. Yeah, there was another remote viewer that spoke about trying to do that and succeeding. He actually showed several pictures of what he thinks were pyramid sites from his remote viewing session that were later shown by NASA, I believe. Um, and he was like showing, this is what I saw and this is where it was and this is the actual picture of Mars. So it's fascinating. And, and what's also interesting is that you know, scientists do believe there's, you know, indications that Mars was once viable. Um, and there's also indications that there's m microbial life on Mars. Um, I don't know why the public isn't more interested in that. Like they even spoke about having ice on Mars, which most people just think it's a big desert. Um, but people are just kind of ignoring some of these facts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on with Mars. I, I've, I've been meaning to do sort of like a deeper dive research project into Mars historically and, you know, all the kind of weird paranormal, so to speak, aspects of it and, and what's going on there and what evidence and life today. I mean, there's a whole conversation. Is there still life on Mars? Um, yeah, it's it's super fascinating to me. I, I haven't really researched that much myself, but it's definitely on my my personal little hit list. So, yeah, here's another thing that I've I've never understood: knowing that most scientists, not all, but many, okay, we'll just say many, believe that we originated from the Big Bang, where all of the matter that's currently in the universe would have been in one area and then shot apart, right? Um, but initially everything was fairly close to each other. So knowing that all the ingredients for life on our planet were like next to other planets, <laughs> like everything was pretty close to each other. I don't understand why people can't get the idea that maybe we're not the only planet that had life. <laughs> You'd think, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you know, the the odds seem to be in uh in in favor of that. Yeah, it's just like I think people just have this tendency to block things that they don't understand, or they don't have a science. If if a scientist put this all in a textbook, it would go from that's crazy to that's too boring for me to pay attention to. Um, just like people don't really pay attention to discoveries we make on the planet now. Um, one of the more interesting ones, for instance, that I heard was that deep in the ocean, they found sharks that lived for 300 years. You know, the things like that, like that we're still discovering um, really interesting and bizarre creatures. Um, and some of them look more alien than anything that we have imagined of these entities that we talk about look like. <laughs> 
and, and then as soon as you just say, yeah, this is in the ocean, people are just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. such a, people are strange. Okay, so um, moving away from remote viewing and maybe back to that comment I made about the potential for experimentation. One of the other interests you have is would be cryptids and especially Bigfoot. So I actually am tempted to ask you if you've tried to remote view uh, Bigfoot before I moved completely away from remote viewing. So I'll do that. Have you ever tried to remote view Bigfoot? Well, <laughs> I have I tried to remote view Bigfoot? I guess like kind of loosely I've tried. Um, that is a project that I'm uh, I'm trying or I, I am kind of putting together to do like a, a more comprehensive kind of Bigfoot remote view. I'm, I'm waiting to like talk about that till we get a little closer to the time. But um, yeah, that's definitely literally at the top of my list of things that I want to do personally with remote viewing and, and in a very serious way. So. Right. So, you know, DJ, the um, host of Calling All Beings is very interested in Bigfoot. Um, and he would probably want the answer as soon as you can give it to him. Um, he's taught me a lot about Bigfoot, and he's taught me that, you know, pretty much everything we say about entities is the same for Bigfoot, including the fact that it could be a trans-dimensional being. Um, but what, what I'm thinking, and this is why I made the comment about experimenting, is there's a possibility that Bigfoot, just like, I hate that term, reptilians, whatever, the guy who created that term is not a good person. Can I, I'll just use scaled entities, okay? <laughs> I'll try that. Scaled entities, right? Scaled entities, even humans and Bigfoot may have all been experiments, right? It's a possibility, I think. Yes, I I think that's absolutely a possibility. And in fact, I, I'm very much inclined towards that perspective. Um, on the subject of Bigfoot, here's my kind of take on why I feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the Patterson footage is legit. The Patterson Gimlin footage that everybody's seen from 1967, you know, where Bigfoot walks across the camera and, and, and looks at the camera all dramatically. I think that's totally legit. I mean, guys like Bill Munns and other people have analyzed that footage and they've shown pretty compellingly that there's basically no way that a person could have fit in that suit, even if somehow you managed to make a suit that convincing in 1967. Um, and so I think that's, excuse me, that alone is, is really compelling evidence for its authenticity. In addition to, I think the tracks have checked out really well. I mean, the, the Patterson Gimlin tracks and Roger was able to cast, uh, he picked the best left foot and the best right foot. But since then, so many people have found tracks that appear to be coming from obviously the same animal, um, you know, and you just add it all up and it just really seems like that's a real Bigfoot. And I think that's a fair, fair, uh, you know, description of the Bigfoot community. They most people seem to think that that's that's legit. It's sometimes it feels like about the only thing they agree on. But um, here's how I kind of came to this conclusion, and this is just me, but I'm quite convinced by my logic here. When you look at Bigfoot, it's very difficult to come to the conclusion that this thing evolved organically 
from the sort of primate family tree as we know it. Um, because it bears so many similarities to the Homo genus and Homo sapiens. You got to figure that, okay, well, <clears throat> I guess it's either really closely related to us. It's some sort of an offshoot of the Homo line, in which case there are problems. Bigfoot is not known, for instance, to, um, you know, make fire or any or use tools, you know, to any real extent. And by the time you get to the Homo line, we're already doing that. So what are the odds that it just sort of de-evolves, so to speak, at a, at an intellectual or cultural level? That's hard to explain. And also it would have to have kind of redeveloped some of these earlier characteristics, like a big sagittal crest and conical head. That's also already gone by the time you get to the Homo genus. So it doesn't really work and it doesn't seem like most, you know, of the, of the sort of biological anthropology, anthropological leaning cryptozoologists and, and you know, Bigfoot enthusiasts go for that. They don't really seem to think it's Homo, but then the problem is if this came from something else like Gigantopithecus or Paranthropus or even like a chimpanzee line, if it somehow came from that, how did it get so close to Homo? I mean, you look at the nose, you look at the eyes, you look at the foot. I mean, the foot as Grover Krantz, who, of course, is sort of like the first big figure in 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 kind of big footology in terms of like, uh, you know, respected academic really taking it seriously and publishing a lot about it. He said that the foot's roughly human in design. OK, and there's, you know, all these different bipedal apes before the Homo genus emerges None of them have foots that look like ours. So then the question becomes, okay, well, if it doesn't seem like it can be from the homo line and it doesn't seem like it's from some other line that through convergent evolution or parallel evolution or whatever, just got extraordinarily one in a million lucky and developed all these ridiculously near human traits, you aren't left with many other options. One option would be, well, I guess the Patterson footage and other, you know, uh, substantiating evidence is just a load of you know what and you know there are skeptics you know particularly like anthropologists and more kind of serious mainstream researchers who look at that and just go yeah right, that's what they think they think it looks like something some kid just made up because it doesn't make sense and so I actually sort of agree with them I think that they should be taken seriously and that the points they're making very much support that idea that it's probably not an organically evolved primate so if it's not an organically evolved primate, yet if it is a flesh and blood animal that appears to reproduce, eat food, and you know very much inhabit our terrain terrestrially, well, what are you left with? I guess you're left with, as you were saying, some sort of a hybridized, genetically manipulated creation. And that's exactly what I think happened. And then we go, okay, well, we know that Bigfoot has been part of at least Native American lore for thousands of years, okay? At least 1,000 years um, because we have rock carvings. We have rock art of Bigfoot that are approximately 1,000 years old. And obviously that's way before like somebody in some lab in Livermore was going to make some freak hybrid or whatever. And I, I don't take that seriously. But again, there were people who wondered that around the time 
that the Patterson footage came out because they noticed the same things we're talking about, these obviously hybrid features. So you go, okay, let's say it's a hybrid. I guess that makes more sense than an organically evolved organism. It's got to be at least a thousand years old. Where did it come from? Well, one answer would be that it came from a prior civilization, something like Atlantis. And then you look at Edgar Cayce's readings of Atlantis, you look at Plato, you look at Graham Hancock, all these people who have done great research or somehow contributed to, you know, Atlantean history and lore. And they're all kind of hitting on this idea that wherever the central islands of Atlantis were, they were probably close to America. And the survivors probably went in large numbers to America. And again, that's what Native American cultures say. They say that they're descendant from some mother civilization, some, some of which literally call it Atlantis, and the survivors came over that way. And that also explains how Bigfoot got here, which is really essential because a lot of the people who subscribe to the sort of organic primate hypothesis just have a doozy of trying to explain how Bigfoot got to North America in the first place. And so you put all of that together and the following becomes pretty clear in my opinion. This is a hybrid. It's not an organically evolved primate. It's a hybrid that's sufficiently old, namely thousands of years, that it probably came from a lost civilization. And we know a lot about Atlantis, putting Bigfoot aside, and I think there's great reason in the public record to believe Atlantis is a real place, like Graham Hancock just did that great Netflix documentary, Ancient Apocalypse, that lays out a really convincing case of all these Atlantean sites. I'd recommend if anyone listening hasn't watched it to seriously do that. But you put it all together and the picture becomes pretty clear to me that we're probably dealing with a hybridized population that was created in the time of Atlantis. So that's that's my hypothesis on Bigfoot and and I think probably it'll hold up pretty well. So what's interesting about that is that, you know, it, when I look at the video, I see a lot of gorilla, you know, and, and then people point out, well, the gate is definitely not gorilla and gorillas don't walk upright like that. And they're not as tall as that. So there, there is that. Okay. So there's gorilla. And then, of course, there's human features. In fact, some people who see Bigfoot say that Bigfoot ranges um, in how hairy Bigfoot can be. And that sometimes it's pretty close to being human, just much bigger, <laughs> you know, like a giant. And we've had plenty of stories of giants, too. Let's not forget giants are a universal myth. And I'm deep on myths right now. So um, that's a universal global myth that there have been giants. Um, so there's human and there's gorilla, but then there's the other piece. There's the ability that they have to speak telepathically. There's the ability that they have to emote their feelings, right? So both of those things connect quite a bit to these entities that people talk about running into. So yeah, I'm, I'm more on the hybrid, I think they might have picked up some of the um, abilities to kind of apparate, so to speak, that some entities have. I don't know if they developed them themselves or they were taught that or, you know, maybe they ended up here because they had that ability in the first place and they apparated themselves in here and out. I don't know. 
There's so many questions that are possible. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Tom DeLong, actually, he recently, um, I think, sent an email or something to like to the stars, donors or email subscribers. But he was talking about, a, I, I think it's a book he's working on. And he was saying a lot of the same stuff you're saying. He's saying that, you know, the way he sees Bigfoot, it's something that can sort of dematerialize and rematerialize. It can have a physical form or a non-physical form. Um, and, you know, all of that sort of woo Bigfoot stuff. And he said something super interesting, which also harkens back to what you were saying, which is that, uh, according to him, that there are scientists connected to the government who have analyzed Bigfoot genetics and have some very interesting questions <laughs> about exactly what this thing is. And I think I would guess that sort of plays into what you and I, I guess, are kind of on the same page on, which is that it's probably some sort of a hybrid and it may have some human genetics in there. Yeah. And the people who supposedly have gotten their hands on entity genetics come back and say um, they're human. So it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the human genetics come first in the entity or did the entity genetics come first and we're calling them human now you know so there's all there's a lot of possibilities and and again this is one of those things where people listening who haven't studied uh, any of this are going to be like oh all of this is crazy but if you look at what humans are capable of doing themselves now and just like let's say add thousands of years of civilization on top of what we can do now um, is it really that crazy to imagine like humans right now can mess with genetics right now we can corrupt genetics right now we're creating biological robots right now like so again I don't understand why like again people are just like no no it's crazy if you talk about it but we're doing it <laughs> yeah I agree I mean it's it's just one of those things where I think it speaks to kind of we're we're brought up with this kind of narrative about how things are and you know we're we're accustomed to kind of laughing off or calling things crazy that are a little outside the box but as you said think about what we can do okay i mean we can already make hybridized animals and you know you got to assume that in the grand scheme of things we're probably nowhere near as developed as some of these so-called aliens so yeah could they make something like bigfoot I'm sure they could, you know, if we had an advanced civilization, Atlantis, even if there were no alien connection whatsoever, but it was sufficiently advanced, I think they probably could too. Right. And I believe that, you know, we're doing things like trying to bring the woolly mammoth back. Right. And, uh, you know, people are talking about creating little baby factories, essentially. <laughs> Like, that really kind of freaks me out a little bit. I mean, we've been thinking about it in science fiction for years. You always see, like, the aliens have their little babies in jars growing and stuff like that. Or, oh, Superman, right? Didn't he have just, like, a whole collection of, like, babies from his planet that he was trying to keep alive at some point in some series? So, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, the idea of putting babies in jars, essentially, they don't call them that. They're like electronic wombs. 
but yeah, it's it's just the the stuff of science fiction is just becoming science reality more and more. Yep, absolutely. I I completely agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other potential experiments on the planet because they fascinate me equally. In fact, I was reading um, sapiens. Um, I was reading about our evolution. I was reading about all these different hominid branches that, again, people would just disbelieve if if it wasn't said by scientists, right? But you know, like if I if I were to go tell people, hey, there's people that um, are, you know, three and a half feet tall. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. They live on an island. Um, and they look just like us in every way. They just happen to be three and a half feet tall. They don't have dwarfism. They don't have any other genetic condition other than that they're three and a half feet tall. People would tell me I was crazy, right? But anthropologists have found these people at two different sites. So, you know, let's talk about some of these other cryptids that are getting described as being like three point five feet tall um so often we call them fey um or little people gnomes there's like a bajillion names um so what do you think about all that yeah so there's a ring uh pendek that's uh I think what you may have been talking about the uh, well, that that's a little bit different, but orang pendek was found. Um, and that's basically what you're describing like so-called hobbit human population that was found coexisting with us. And that was a big kind of shock to the system for anthropologists. Um, and then, yeah, there's these accounts of these little people. Um, oh, sorry. Homo floresiensis was the species that was found, but it was found near where there's a, a reports of this cryptid orang pendek. That's what I should have said. Sorry. Um, but yeah, that was really interesting and surprising. And then, yeah, you get the fade, the little people. Yeah, I, I think it's totally possible that that there are other types of human or very near, you know, human homo sapien uh, beings that have lived among us maybe today, but but certainly a lot more recently than, than we would have guessed. Yeah. I would say it's almost a more pervasive story than Bigfoot. It's really interesting how these are very internationally pervasive stories. In fact, on my bookshelf here is a book on Bigfoot that I haven't read yet um, that is from Russia. And it's about Russian research into Bigfoot. Um, I just haven't gotten to it. But it is really, these things are international. When it goes to the little people, that is, you know, every country as well. It's all through South America. Uh, you know, it was all through Europe. Um, obviously, every continent has these shared stories. Um, so, you know, we have so many names for them. I think that that does us a disservice sometimes. And perhaps there really are that many different ones. Um, but there's like another good example is gremlins, right? People would say these little beings would come and sabotage things and they would call them gremlins. And that's how that movie came about later. So what is your favorite cryptid out of all of these? Ooh, I mean, I guess Bigfoot will always be like the coolest cryptid. I mean, it's, 
it's cool no matter what but i mean especially if you subscribe to me like the kind of ultra terrestrial type stuff going on in iraq like it can disappear and reappear and like it's nocturnal and all it's just like the coolest but i also really love the loch ness monster i just love nessie ever since i was a kid that might be kind of my personal just like my fave like my favorite flavor of ice cream i just love nessie and and it's not just Nessie, but but the you know plesiosaur-like creatures that are said to inhabit all different spots around the world. Yeah, and considering, like I said, that we have sharks that are three hundred years old, if we go deep enough in the ocean, I mean, who's to say, right? Who's to say what's still there? Um, we we've just always had this assumption that because we don't see something, it's not there which is so funny because religious people are the opposite way that if you don't see it, you believe it and it's faith and it's great <laughs> and you can't not believe it because we say so. Um, but it's like, there's so many things that we just haven't discovered or understood. And I just, it's hubris to think everything died um, before what we're really knowledgeable now. Right. Even Bigfoot, not a huge population it's it's probably it would say an endangered species um perhaps one that's increasing in number though because it seems like you hear more and more about it um but just because they're not just traipsing through <laughs> all the neighborhoods where they would probably get shot doesn't mean they don't exist so i don't know what do you think of mothman Mothman is definitely something I take seriously. I mean, you have lots of accounts of it, lots of really consistent accounts from people who don't seem to know each other and mass witness accounts, too. And anytime you get all that stuff going on, it you know, definitely seems like something you should take seriously. I, I haven't really had a chance to, to look into it super deeply, but um, from what I know about it, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And its connection with, like, natural disasters and things like that and i know there's been a lot of mothman type activity um in the chicago and great lakes area recently i've, I've always been curious what not always but since it's happened why like what's what's going on there's some disaster looming or is there some other reason it's there i don't know but but yeah mothman is definitely super fascinating to me okay so i'm going to go into like the science here for just a moment so we know the infrasound is connected to natural disasters. There's a sound that gets picked up, for instance, when there's going to be an earthquake or a volcano is going to erupt. This sound or whatever shift is happening in the planet gets picked up by animals and it freaks them out. Sometimes they migrate really quickly or they become still, I guess, afraid. Um, and that causes them to be very still. And coincidentally, infrasound and all of those things connect to the phenomenon. So perhaps it's not so much that Mothman's trying to warn people by becoming uh, present during a natural disaster, but maybe Mothman's attracted to it for some reason. That's a really interesting hypothesis. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, I've actually heard experiencers talk about, you know, they feel like they need to go look outside 
um, when a UFO is actually out there, um, they have a sense that they can't understand of something being there. And I just wonder if at some level our brain is like picking up that infrasound, um, picking up something that is outside of our normal level of perception. And that's what's triggering them going outside or having a physical response, um, just like with the animals. And, and it's a shame that we don't have that on a more surface level, because I would love for, you know, for us to just, just be sure, you know, there's going to be a UFO outside. I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> I've also heard that um, infrasound can cause um, damage to people. Have you heard of Bigfoot damaging people with that? I don't know if I have with infrasound. Uh, no. What, what what specifically do you mean by that? Like Bigfoot will like make a noise and then the person in response like like they self-defecate or they get really terrified. Um, not necessarily because of the noise. It's like a deeper thing. Like something their body responds to something being emitted by Bigfoot. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's totally, that could be another one of those kind of special features that it has, right? If we're hypothesizing that it's a hybrid and it can like dematerialize and rematerialize and all this crazy stuff, maybe, maybe that's another indication that this thing is not a natural animal or, you know, organically evolved animal. Right. So what do you, what would you say your favorite um, cryptid story is out of all these cryptids that you've been interested in? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the Patterson, not just the footage, but the incident is really cool. Um, my favorite cryptid story, you know, Okay, I have an answer that might be kind of that's just the first thing that came to my mind. I really like Mokelium bembe, which is you know an alleged sauropod-like animal living in in, a, in a Cameroon and the Congo and Africa and perhaps elsewhere too. But um, one of my my favorite stories for that one is what well, really I don't know if you can boil it down to one story, but um, there was there was an incident where a pit where pygmies over there apparently killed one of them and ate it and i guess they got really sick like and got salmonella or something and died mm -hmm. and it's a really well documented story actually in the mokele and bembe literature um there were a lot of witnesses like the, the pygmy population there was you know very adamant that it happened and they had erected these kind of fence or wall-like structures to keep it out of their their part of the water and those structures were still there like years later when when some researchers went so it's it's a really well documented and interesting case i do wonder why if it's just coincidence that they they, they happen to die after eating the mokilian bembe meat or if it's something it tells us something about the animal but whatever it is that's a really interesting one um and just the whole Bokili and Bembe lore, so to speak. I mean, it's like that scene in Jurassic Park in the beginning. It's a, it's a dinosaur, and they look up, and the John Williams music is playing, and you see this 
literal dinosaur of his long neck sauropod. Just the idea that that's still around, that there's still some of those in Africa or again, perhaps elsewhere, is just so enchanting and, and wondrous to me. I mean, I would just love to look at that with my own two eyes to have that it's a dinosaur moment from Jurassic Park. I mean, that's that's really, really cool. So I think that's the common thread for you. I think for all of these, anything that has dinosaurs seems to <laughs> like because it's got Atlantean Atlanteans have dinosaurs, right? And then um there's possible genetic dinosaur hybrids with the entities and then you know, it sounds like some of these cryptids. And, of course, I would say Nessie is probably something like a plesiosaurus, right? Yeah, and what I think happened here, you know, it's not that much different than Bigfoot. In, in a sense, it, it might be very, very literally connected. But here's the thing with Nessie, or Mokili and Bembe for that matter, but it's kind of the same thing cryptozoologists tend to take them very seriously because there's lots of accounts, lots of really credible accounts and they check out and they're consistent. And, you know, they're, they're two of the favorite cryptids in the community because there's just so many witnesses and, you know, consistent witnesses. But the thing they can't seem to figure out is, okay, plesiosaurs. We know they went extinct 65 million years ago and they're not in the fossil record. So some people think that they're not actually plesiosaurs, but it's some case of independent, you know, evolution and it's animals that happen to look like that or same with Mokili and Bembe. But my answer is, well, wait a second. Aren't we making an assumption here that is not necessarily true? In other words, we're thinking, okay, Nessie is either a plesiosaur and it survived 65 million years, or it's not a plesiosaur and it just either doesn't exist or it's something that just happened to evolve in a similar way. But isn't there a third option, which is that, oh yes, it's a plesiosaur. It's an incredibly literal Cretaceous plesiosaur, but it was brought back somehow in the time of Atlantis, for instance, in a lost civilization, either through biotech or maybe even like a, a portal or something, or maybe it just kind of entered through a portal. Maybe it wasn't even brought back intentionally. I mean, who knows? There's, there's, there's different options there. But once you plug in the sort of Atlantean hypothesis that there was this lost civilization, you begin to think, okay, well, wait a second. There is a third option here. There's an out. It's not just that somehow they survived 65 million years without showing up in the fossil record, which is possible. I, I don't I don't rule that out at all. But there is a third option here, which is it is a plesiosaur, but somehow in the time of Atlantis, or again, maybe not even, maybe it just kind of crossed over through a portal or something. We maybe, you know, space time is weirder than we think. But for some way or another, these animals were reintroduced. And that would also explain why I think there's a cover-up because I think the the evidence for surviving plesiosaurs is just unbelievably compelling. I mean, I I cannot for the life of me imagine that there's no Loch Ness monster and that it's something other than a plesiosaur. I mean, I've done like really deep research on that and 
it's it's just astounding. I mean, talk about foreknowledge of witnesses, getting things right about plesiosaurs way before they would have been in any position to know that. I mean, one Nessie case is there were these two kids that were out in the boat, and I think like elementary school age kids, and they see these little baby Nessies, these little baby plesiosaur-like things, and they're talking about how each set of flippers is doing something different in terms of locomotion. And, and now we know that that's probably true for plesiosaurs. You know, they, the sh flippers are shaped differently and like you know, the forelimbs may have been dominant or whatever. The, the, the different flippers are doing something different. And it's just so hard to imagine that the kids happened upon that or just got it right. And there's all these other things. I mean, it just goes on and on. All these consistent descriptions of a plesiosaur-like animal. It's usually gray. It's usually about the same size. Uh, the proportions in, in some of the good photographs are identical. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so I think to myself, okay, what about that third option? That they are plesiosaurs, but somehow they were reintroduced to our environment. And for whatever reason, the same people doing the UFO cover-up don't want us to know that. Because if we get a plesiosaur body, we, we're going to find out exactly that. We're going to find out that, hey... There's something up with this because this is a literal plesiosaur and it hasn't changed in 65 million years. And so you're telling me not only did this thing escape the fossil record, already kind of hard to believe, very hard to believe, skeptics would say, but it hasn't evolved in 65 million years. That's not, that is even harder to believe, arguably. I mean, animals should not go 65 million years like that without evolving in some pretty obvious ways. I mean, we've had so many climactic shifts and ice ages and the environment, what they're eating has changed and the temperature. I mean, just everything. It's, it, it's a probabilistic nightmare to think that plesiosaurs survived. And, and that's why I understand skeptics and even a lot of cryptozoologists not taking that particularly seriously. So my answer is, okay, well, what does the evidence show us? The evidence shows us that it appears to be a plesiosaur, something extraordinarily close, that the odds of that happening based on chance, you know, the role of the evolutionary dice that some animal gets that close to it are slim. Yet the eyewitness testimony and the photographic evidence is just so unbelievably compelling. You aren't left with much more than what I call that third option, that it's a plesiosaur, but somehow it was reintroduced. So that's what I think about Nessie. And Mokili and Bembe in, in Africa too. Well, that's interesting. I'm I'm just envisioning now how some of the stories that we've told may merge. So one of the stories is that you know the star people, the sky people, some of them separate from their original group and decide to meet with humans. So what if <laughs> You know, there it's just like a little bit more complicated, but what if there was an ancient civilization that came to the planet, looked around, messed around with the DNA, had some fun, went to Mars for a while, made some pyramids, said, you know, Mars isn't that great, then decided, you know what, let's just sit down and figure out this problem and figure it out how to somehow use portals to go even further away. Um, because definitely there are other planets that ent uh, entities take people to. Um, that's what experiencers report. 
And there's also a lot of conversations about portals. So maybe what happened is some of them came back some time ago and they had a little bit of a Noah's Ark, um, so to speak, with all the different experiments that they had and just kind of crashed and let them all loose. All of the little people, the fae, the giants, the Bigfoot, the Mothman, all of it. What if it just like, oh, this could be a really good movie. Actually, I'm, I'm not kidding. I would watch that movie where like there's just this <laughs> big giant craft filled with all these different entities that goes, oops, we accidentally crashed and just unleashed this on your planet. Sorry. <laughs> I would watch that movie too. I mean, who knows that that could be close to the truth. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I wonder if we'll ever know though. I mean, that, that, that is so much more than what we are at right. Like level wise, right. We're now accepting, of course, um, more and more about psi abilities. I think even psychology today did an article that was related to that. Um, all of the magazines and newspapers have at some point or other done something about the UFO report or the paranormal in general. Of course, ghosts have never gone away as a topic. That's a whole other conversation we may need to have one day. But, um, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're at a point in society where it's less laughable and more like just kind of a given which, which I have to say in other societies, it's always been a given. Like, we're a little slow on this <laughs> over here in Western society. Pretty slow. Um, but, yeah, I just, I wonder if we're ever going to fully grasp it all. I don't know. Just ruminating. I, I think so. I mean, you know, there may be aspects of, you know, the true nature of reality that could be literally beyond our, our comprehension. Right. I mean, you know, we are, who are we to say we have the ability to understand absolutely everything. Perhaps our brains, you know, are, are not as evolved as some other beings or something that that's fair. But I do think that there's an awful lot that we are capable of understanding or else there wouldn't be a cover up. <laughs> if it's like, if they're covering things up and they don't want us to know things, and I, I think that's sort of a given most people in the UFO community believe, then there must be things that, wow, we better not that, let that out or else they're going to piece it together. So I do think there's probably a lot more that we can understand that we're not being told. Light, sound, and frequency. That's one of the rabbit holes I went down. And in that rabbit hole... They explored, well, I explored how wavelengths can be manipulated and all the th impacts they have on the human and how they can manipulate the environment, um, even going through walls, just like, you know, people say some of these entities do, or creating matter, just like people say some of these entities do. So if we're starting to understand, you know, light, sound, frequency to the point where we're making quantum computers within our, let's say, 200 years of technological 
boom, right? Because it was about 200 years ago that we started that boom. Then imagine someone who's been doing it for thousands of years. They already understand that. That to them is elementary school. Yep. <laughs> I you, yeah. you said it perfectly. I agree. Yeah. I just, again, the hubris that interferes with people having these ideas really gets to me. Everyone's always like, well, they, they would have to travel so far. It would take so long and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, they had the time. They had billions of years. <laughs> billions. Like the human life is not even a blink of an eye in billions of years. So every human that's going, oh, no, that's impossible. Like it's a blink of an eye in the life of you know the universe so yeah i think uh another civilization probably is looking at all of us and just kind of laughing at how we're like oh wow look this is an atom <laughs> or oh, oh oh wow this is what our dna looks like you know i think it was in the 2000s before we finally did the human genome project we didn't even know what our dna was all about until then and i can tell you um my son's chromosome deletion they couldn't have even detected it a few years before he was born the only reason they detected it then was because they had changed instrumentation so they still don't know everything about the human genome <laughs> you know like so i don't know it's just amusing to me the hubris that interferes with us when it comes to making discoveries and accepting differences and possibilities. So I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, speaking to that point, I think, um, I think compartmentalization has a lot to do with that in the sense that we live in a very compartmentalized society and, mm -hmm. you know, we've divided everybody into experts. There's an expert on, genetics there's an expert on astrophysics there's an expert on quantum mechanics and it really takes a very holistic approach i think to piece together some of this stuff and i know i'm not the only one in the ufo community right who feels sometimes overwhelmed it's like look i don't have nine phds here how am i supposed to figure this all out but i think once you at least grasp that conceptually that there are other options for a lot of these things. Like you said, the hubris, we think we know things, we think we haven't figured out. Once you accept that there are many other options to explain a lot of these things, you're, you can begin sort of connecting dots. And I think that's kind of where your right brain comes in. And you can see things a little more clearly than, than maybe you would have thought. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things to do is to try to connect everything together, which is one of the reasons that I named my website the UFO Connector, because there are quite a lot of trees, but the forest, oh, once you get all those trees in place, the forest is an interesting, interesting place. And I'm inclined to think there's truth to all the hypotheses now. There's truth to everything that people are thinking. And one day everyone's gonna stop trying to be separate and trying to keep everything in their little box and start seeing the forest. I absolutely agree. And I think on some level, it's not even that surprising of an outcome because with so much of the paranormal topic, 
you're dealing with the exact same argument over and over again, just the same song, another verse. It's like, okay, well, you know, you'll hear skeptics saying this a lot. Well, okay, well, anything's more likely than UFOs. Anything's more likely than aliens from another planet. It's like, well, wait, hang on. Is it? I mean, what, open your mind to it for a second and see if it explains the data really well. And then you get the same thing with Bigfoot. You get the same thing with Atlantis. You get the same thing with poltergeist, with Faye. I mean, all these different topics, there's this continual, you know, desire to kind of throw it to the side of the pile in the fringe category. And mm -hmm. I'm just saying to myself, well, why? I mean, you know, <laughs> what is so inherently unlikely about this? And in some level, that's kind of what the paranormal category is. They don't necessarily have that much in common conceptually, except they're all kind of being covered up for the same reason or for different reasons. But basically one big reason, which is that whatever this stuff is, it conflicts with a narrative. It conflicts with a narrative that really is not bottom up at all. It's quite top down. It's from, you know, leaders or shadowy figures in intelligence communities or whatever. And they've constructed this sort of narrative. And we sit here and we sort of play along and get in fights with each other about it. And, you know, someone's just sitting there cackling or whatever, like happy that we're doing that because we're not connecting the dots and we're not seeing the connections between it all. So that's sort of my take on that. Yeah, my my rule of thumb is, yes, go into a rabbit hole, but don't do it for longer than a day, right? Because I'm, if anything, I'm in one giant rabbit hole, and it's the phenomenon. It's like, it's the whole phenomenon is my giant rabbit hole. And then, you know, all the other ones, I don't even know what, the mole hole? I guess they're mole holes because they're smaller, right? So <laughs> fairy holes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, I like that. So I um I will definitely try to continue to connect the dots. I will just say I think the the world is a part a, of a paranormal and cosmo like a cosmos oriented um cosmic internet right uh that that we're all part of something much greater and it's exciting to think about it's just you know when you think about that picture of the earth that was taken i believe the voyager took the picture from a great distance away and see that we're just that little tiny blue dot right um the hubris goes away pretty quick we're lucky we were even able to see the earth on that picture it was so tiny <laughs> Yeah, the, the tiny blue dot. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's 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 like that picture really is so powerful in what it conveys is how ultimately tiny and insignificant this little world is in the grand scheme of the universe. And and it's sort of it begets all of these questions like how how did we get here? What's going on in all the other places and why aren't we being told and all of that? And I, I think about that all the time. Yeah, I think the other thing is that, you know, we have two conflicting feelings about it being that tiny blue dot, right? 
the one feeling is, oh, we're so special and unique. Look at us. We survived. We're alive. Look at us. Woohoo. And then the other side is, oh, I hope we're not the only ones because that's awfully lonely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Those, that, that is two, two heads of the same coin for sure. I know. So, you know, I, th I think uh, I, I'm going to go back to thinking about that giant Noah's Ark of dinosaurs that we've now created in our conversation. Um, dinosaurs and Bigfoot and Faye and just a Mothman and a whole bunch of cool things. And uh, I hope that one day we'll get more evidence to answer some of these questions. I look forward to that. And, you know, if, if, if I had to say instinctively, I think we will. And, of course, if you start remote viewing any of this, I would like you to tell me. <laughs> I absolutely will, and I would love to. I would, I would love to be the person to uncover new stuff and, and, and bring it to the public eye. I absolutely, I think about that all the time, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I tell you directly. <laughs> okay, great. And just so you know, if you start remote viewing Bigfoot, don't be surprised if Bigfoot notices. Don't be surprised if Bigfoot remote views me. He's exactly. Gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be. They're gonna find me. Right. <laughs> that's you that's know, where that's where this is going. So, and it's worth saying as a final note, I have heard that these entities that um, are watching us, you know, perhaps you know maybe entities. Uh, difficult word maybe non-human intelligence is what people prefer but uh supposedly you know they're just kind of chilling and remote viewing us too <laughs> so yeah yeah i mean i that's i definitely think something like that is certainly theoretically possible and would explain a lot i mean you know they, they're maybe some of them are sort of projecting here themselves they're they're not even necessarily physically present so right and I will one day learn the secret way of remote viewers. I will. I'm not there yet. I think I'm in a different place. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that when we close. I, other people who have listened to the show have already heard about my meditation experiences. So I don't want to bore anyone who's listening. But I'll tell you more about it when we close. So on that note, can you please let people know how they can find you? Yes, thank you for saying. Um, I think as of right now, it's probably just best to look at my Twitter page. It's just at DJ Duel. That's D-E-E-J-A-Y-D-U-U-L. And I have a lot of like threads right at the top of my page. You can see I do kind of deep dive, uh, you know, topics and book reviews and things like that. So yeah, add me on Twitter, follow me, should be a DM. It's all cool. I love to engage with new people. Why? Well, really am very glad that you came on here today. I hope that you are going to make some more friends on Twitter um, and more acquaintances and that we continue to all just work together to unravel this mystery, put the dots together, look at the forest, understand what the heck is going on. Right? Yep. Well said. And, and thank you for having me on. That was super, super cool of you. And I'm glad that I got the opportunity to do it. Well, you were amazing. And thank you to everyone who listened. This is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. If you need to find me, I'm at Study of UAPs 
I'm with the UFOConnector.com and I'm with UAP Medical Coalition. If you want to find me on YouTube, I'm on Calling All Beings. And of course, I'm all over social media at Study of UAPs. Feel free to reach out if you need me and everyone take care.